This is CNBC's The Brave Ones podcast with Dominic Chu. I went to a series of kind of posh boarding schools and was a big rebel. You know, I was thrown out of school three times. It wasn't that I was taking drugs or, you know, climbing over the walls to date, you know, boys. It was really much more that I just was constantly questioning authority and they just thought I was a pain in the ass. Well, that was Tina Brown, the legendary journalist, author, also the editor of Tatler magazine, Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, and the news site, The Daily Beast. She was most recently the founder of Women in the World and that summit series there. Tina is also the subject of a recent episode of The Brave Ones, which is CNBC International's series that celebrates successful risk takers all around the globe. And as you'll see in this episode here, Tina Brown has never shied away from an opportunity ever. And she always seems to be in the middle of the biggest stories around the world, even from a very, very young age. When I was 10, my father uh, came home with the most exciting news any 10-year-old could have had in the 60s, which is, I can take you on the set of the Beatles film. And that was Help, which they were shooting at the time at Twickenham Studios. And I can just remember as a 10-year-old girl showing up with my father to the set of Help. My hero was John Lennon. All I wanted was John Lennon. But of course, true to form, it was Paul who was really nice to me because Paul was always a nice guy. He was sweet, you know, like, oh my God, you don't look 10. You look good. I thought you were 15. And and John completely and utterly ignored me. He was not interested in any way. And I just sort of thought I was crushed. But at the same time, it was the most exciting day of my life. All right. So not too many people in the world can say that they met the Beatles, especially as a 10-year-old back then. Let's bring in two of the people who got to work on this series. In particular, we're talking about Betsy Alexander. She's the executive producer of The Brave Ones. Also, Kevin Kane, who produced this particular episode highlighting Tina Brown. He also got to spend a lot of time with her during the course of his news-gathering, story-gathering process. So, so what were the initial impressions right off the bat? Yeah, well, around the same time that we started following her, she released her book, which was called The Vanity Fair Diary. So she was kind of on a book tour. We were following her around, interviewing her. We went to Los Angeles. We went to Toronto. We went to Washington, D.C. I mean, she just has so much energy running around, talking about her book. I mean, we really had a hard time keeping up with her. It was amazing. Well, normally when we do this series, we've been doing it for a few years now. We, um, when we talk to the main person, when we've talked, when we've spoken with Jack Ma or Bernard Arnault or any of the people, long list of people, we basically catch up with them someplace that's convenient for them. But very unusually, Tina invited us into her home, which was the first time that it ever happened. There was no entourage. There was nothing. She walked down the steps from, you know, another floor of the house, said hello to everybody. There was a cute little cat running around. She sat down and just started talking with Kevin. Well, it seems so interesting only because you're seeing her today in this kind of environment. You would think that a woman like that maybe wouldn't have had the kind of background that she did, especially in her adolescence. I mean, we we heard the bite. She got kicked out of multiple fancy kind of preparatory (laughs) schools before then going to probably the fanciest college arguably in the world, and that is Oxford University. She was only 16 years old. They accepted her. So, and she talks about when she got there, that was really when she felt like it really opened her up. Like she was able to become the person that we kind of know today. And from a journalism perspective, this is also the time about when she went to kind of really start her storytelling career, right? And this is something with, with the idea of being at Punch Magazine and everything else that, that, that she really kind of started, took those first steps in a formative career in, in, in terms of storytelling. 
Well, I believe she had a byline on some of the publications on Fleet Street, even when she was a university student. Right. Yeah. She was writing for the university magazine. She was uh, writing for the the various papers on Fleet Street. And um, yeah, she already had a, a column. But then she she got the offer from Punch Magazine, which was uh, a job that led to her changing kind of the worst, you know, like her direction and what she thought she wanted to do with her life. And it's a lesson in immersive storytelling. Perhaps we'll just kind of play that clip right now. I was offered a column in Punch Magazine, which is a sort of humor magazine at the time. And of course, girls always ended up being given the sort of the silly and fluffy assignments, which began to irritate me enough that I decided I needed to go edit something myself. But one of the assignments that I was given was to investigate what it was like to be a go-go dancer. And so I was asked by the editor if I would actually be a go-go dancer for one uh, afternoon in a, a bar in Hackensack, New Jersey, which I did. I was Union Jackie, and I danced on the... <laughs> I danced on the tabletop and then wrote my column. But once I'd finished that, I thought, you know, maybe I should be the one to be assigning the pieces. <laughs> Tita Brown did it. She got up on a table in New Jersey and was a go-go dancer and then told the tale partly from that perspective of being one. So, I mean, this is this is what journalism is about. So Tina, like a lot of very successful people, was always willing to take on the assignments that maybe nobody else wanted to do. And sort of a trademark of many of the brave ones is they do that, they're very successful at that, and then the next assignment comes along, and it really it puts people in a position to really be a superstar. That's kind of what happened early in her career, right, with regard to the, the risk-taking or, or the, the taking a bit of a gamble on something or, or starting something new. Right. So her first real big job was at a magazine called Tatler. Uh, an Australian real estate tycoon had bought the magazine and was looking for someone to take it over and become the editor. I was uh, approached by uh, an entrepreneur uh, who had bought the Tatler magazine, which at that time was a sort of ailing, shiny sheet with a 200-year-old pedigree. So it had a great name, but had a staff of 10 and was sort of 10,000 circulation. But I did see it as an opportunity. I saw the Tatler. It would be my show. I could be the one doing the assigning. I could be the one with the story ideas, of which I had multiple, which I, I, would, I would now be uh, a buyer, not a seller. And uh, it was the best thing I ever did because it was a playground for me. It was wonderful for me. I hired all my sort of smart, enfant, terrible friends, um, lots of young writers that I knew. And it, it was a, a, we took it from being a sort of boring establishment, um, sort of sort of sycophantic thing, to being um, a very kind of sharp, attitudinal, sophisticated thing with a lot of glamorous visuals and a real attitude. I mean, it had real attitude, Tatler. In fact, our motto was, if you haven't got a budget, get yourself a point of view. Because if you, you, know, you have no money to assign anything, you better have a, an idea, you better know how to write a headline. And it was wonderful training because I had to do everything. I had to learn how to write headlines and captions and contents pages and lay out photographs and talk to photographers because there was only a staff of about 12 of us. And uh, it, it took off pretty much within a few months, actually. And, um, of course, we had the biggest story, that uh, social story of, of the century, really, which was the rise of Princess Diana. We followed that story. We covered that story. We owned that story, actually. And to the point that when the royal wedding happened um, uh, in 1981, 
uh, I was asked to be the co-anchor of the Today Show from London. I'd like you to meet Tina Brown, who's uh, one of this country's best-known journalists. She's the editor of The Tatler, a lively, provocative magazine of high society. She calls it a comic book for the high mm -hmm. society. I think she was always absolutely dotty about Prince Charles, right from the word go. I think she pinned his picture above her bunk at school and was mad about him from the word go. By the way, one of those voices that you heard, if you're an NBC News fan, is Tom Brokaw who anchored the nightly news for years. Now, this is very much a situation where, for many people out there among the brave ones, or anybody who's successful in business or otherwise around the world, it is to some degree about being in the right place at the right time. Also, beginning with Princess Diana and throughout her career, she has always had her finger on the pulse of everything that's about to happen in pop culture. People were always looking for the next big story. Tina can identify the next big trend, and she's there before anybody else. Right. She increased circulation of that magazine from 10,000, like it was literally on the verge of folding, to 100,000. It was so successful that uh, Cy Newhouse, the, the gentleman who ran uh, Condé Nast at the time, decided to buy Tatler. Cy Newhouse, the chairman, came to London, fell in love with Tatler, bought Tatler, and I was suddenly in this big glossy stable of magazines with many other opportunities. And that's when I heard about uh, how Condé Nast were now launching this new big American glossy magazine called Vanity Fair. And they had they were rolling out this huge startup in 1983. And of course, I waited with bated breath in the last days of managing a Tatler to see what it was going to be like. And I thought it was going to be something amazing that would help us raise our game in the company. But then when it arrived, I felt like everybody else, it was just a huge turkey. You know, it, it was just boring as, as hell. Wow. Wow. A dud. Dud, in essence. She basically crapped on the entire, yes. <laughs> in the entire kind of relaunch right. and, and, and all the resources that were poured into right. kind of relaunching this kind of, you know, I would say it's iconic, but it had been dead in essence for right. decades right. You know, prior to that. So the, this relaunch didn't go well. They offered her a position at the magazine to try to help them fix it. And she said, I will only do it if I'm the editor. When I took over Vanity Fair, it really was cratering. I mean, there were 12 pages of advertising. It was a source of scorn. I mean, people really made fun of it. My first uh, thing I did was to go in over the weekend with the art department and just redesign the magazine soup to nuts, back to front from the contents page to the end. New, clean, classic, strong design. And I was looking around in this office for something I could put into my first issue because it was like a couple of weeks, you know. And I came upon this fabulous cache of photographs by Annie Leibovitz, who'd been taking pictures, but somehow, for some reason, they weren't publishing these pictures. And it was this wonderful portfolio of photographs of comedians, Pee Wee Herman hanging upside down, and there were pictures of, you know, Whoopi Goldberg in a bath of milk, and wonderful pictures that have ended up in Annie's classic shows ever since. And um, I said, we've got to do this. We'll call it April Fools, because it's April magazine. And we just threw that in. And then I sent Helmut Newton, the great uh, fashion photographer, off to L.A. to do an Oscar story because it was the Oscars at that time. And uh, we did something I called it Blonde Ambition. And we did all the kind of the most exciting blondes in Hollywood at the time. And we, we put Daryl Hannah blindfold on the cover with the Oscar statuettes, which was like, you know, the scales of justice, you know, Vanity Fair hanging in the balance. It was it was a Fabulous cover. And I discovered this new writer who became, of course, the, uh, uh, absolutely aligned to our success, which was Dominic Dunn. We have the April 1984 cover of Vanity Fair, her first as the editor of this particular publication. You can see there the Daryl Hannah blindfolded with the Oscar <laughs> statuette that she mentioned in that clip. 
Dominic Dunn writes the story. This is her first cover. This cover could be on the newsstand today. Today. I mean, she, from the very first first issue, she had a vision for what the magazine would be, and it still exists today. It took a year and a half for Vanity Fair to really click. The first 10 or 12 issues people thought were greatly improved. It was getting kind of nice reviews, but it wasn't sort of breaking through. And in fact, Cy Newhouse in um, June of 1985, uh, came very close to closing it. And I suddenly heard that we'd been told we couldn't hire anybody. Well, we all know what that means. It means bad news. So I rushed back on the red eye and confronted Cy and said to him, look, I've got these amazing stories in the works. You've got to give me another six months. One of them was a shoot and an an interview with the Reagans. It was a, a photo shoot that Harry Benson did. I went with him to the White House. And these pictures just became very iconic in Vanity Fair's history. So Tina loved working with some some very iconic photographers, um, amongst which Helmut Newton, Annie Leibovitz, and Harry Benson. Harry Benson is the guy who documented the Beatles, including that famous picture we all know of with the Beatles having a, a pillow fight. A pillow fight, yeah. Yeah, pillow fight. Documented Robert Kennedy, documented the Clintons. Um, And he and Tina went to the White House together, where he shot one of the most famous pictures ever taken of a president. Once the press people at the White House had shown me in, they never asked what all the other equipment was. Harry was brilliant at creating reasons why people would give him what he wanted. Basically, I turned the map room into a studio. And so he took with him a boombox to the White House and he put up this big white screen. And as the Reagans came in, Harry Benson hit the boombox. Nancy, dressed in her long black Adolphus gown, looks at Ronnie in his black tie and says, Oh, Ronnie, that's our song. Let's dance. The two of them, in this really magical moment, start to do this foxtrot together around uh, the white screen with, of course, Harry Benson jumping up and down with his camera, taking pictures. He's a crazy Scottish guy with, you know, toilet brush hair saying, Mr. President, Mr. President, give your wife a kiss. This was a sharp-looking couple who knew how to be photographed. And the president does leans in and gives this screen smooch with Nancy. And I'm thinking, the Reagan kiss, the Reagan kiss. I have my, you know, this is going to be incredible. And it was. I knew it was good. But you never can tell. Ronald and Nancy Reagan. They're kissing. It's in the White House. It was. It, it's one that stuck in many people's minds. So, Betsy, you were there with me, with uh, Harry and his wife, Gigi. What did you What did you think of him? You know, we. I think we were all a little nervous to meet him to begin with because we're going into photograph like one of the primo photographers of the world, and we have to shoot him and light him and sit down with him. He's a character. Do your thing, Harry. Do your... No, I want to get it right. I, I want to get it right. Just get it okay. faster. Okay, you want to meet, I meet Sorry, Tina. He and his wife, Gigi, who are have a ton of amazing stories, etc. They're like a comedy routine. I'm, I'm guaranteeing you I want you all to have good... Oh, Gigi. Let you do a story on this. It was huge. It was the cover that basically turned the the cover and the inside story that basically turned the magazine around. And Tina was everywhere talking about it. She was over the news. She was on talk shows. She was every place, including she was on Merv Griffin's talk show um, to discuss it, which in those days was a very big deal. Never seen a close-up of a president kissing the first lady before. I suppose we've always think they're 
They don't do things like that in the White House. Well, I get the feeling they do it all the time in the White House. And in fact, that became a, a, a cover that was viral before there was viral. You know, it was on every news show, every new, newsstand. Huge amount of press for Vanity Fair. So we're right in the moment of this big event. Ronald and Nancy Reagan, as seen by nobody ever outside of their intimate circle of family and friends. Now the whole world is seeing it in Vanity Fair. This is happening in America, but there's another big event happening across the pond in the UK as well. This next story really had the whole world talking about Vanity Fair for the first time in a long time. And then another story we had, which really, really helped us seal the deal, was um, a piece I did actually about Princess Diana, which was called The Mouse That Roared. And it was the piece that broke the news that the marriage of Diane Charles was in serious trouble. Until that moment in October 1985, people had really thought that the fairy tale was kind of the real fairy tale, you know, that they had got married in St. Paul's and it was this great marriage and she was young and a little bit, uh, you know, unstable at times. But it was still uh, a going concern. I had learned from all my sources at the Tatler, uh, the Tatler days, all those high society people, that actually their marriage was a disaster, that, you know, there were terrible scenes going on, that there were rows, tears. Diana has, you know, we now know had bulimia. You know, it was it was a really bad scene. So I broke that story uh, with a lot of amazing sources. And again, it caused a huge ruckus, you know, because everybody went crazy with that story, another big viral story. And the royal couple actually went on the BBC to deny it. And that is when I knew it was true, because the royal family only ever denies stories that are true. So I thought, got it right. And indeed, in 1997, you know, so many years later, when I, the last time I saw Diana, I had lunch with her at the Four Seasons in New York when she came to auction her dresses for Christie's. And I, she said to me, you know, I owe you an apology. And I said, why is that? And she said, well, you know, you wrote that story and we denied it, but you got it right. I said, I know, I know, ma'am, I know we got it right. But I just thought, you know, when you're a journalist, you have to ask those questions. What I am holding right now is the October 1985 issue of Vanity Fair for $2 an issue, where the cover is Princess Diana, The Mouse That Roared by Tina Brown. So when she put Diana on the cover, she knew that that was going to help the magazine, help save the magazine. A few years after the Diana cover, she put out a, a cover that would really change society. And that was in 1991. I had just had my second baby and I'd spent nine months in maternity clothes, as it were. And I was feeling like rebellious and mutinous of that. Annie had the opportunity to photograph Demi Moore for the cover and she was pregnant. And I said to Annie, Annie, why don't we photograph her showing the stomach in a tight dress? And the wonderful thing about Annie is she always goes further than you ask. So she comes back with the pictures and they're great, Demi in her dress and so on. She said, but there is this other picture, but I really did it for just Demi and Bruce Willis. And I said, well, show me it. And then I saw the picture of Demi naked and pregnant in all her glory. And I said, Annie, we just have to have this for the cover. This is the cover. Walmart told the circulation department on no account would they have this cover. It was just indecent. It wasn't going to happen. So uh, not to be defeated, we decided to shrink wrap the magazine like a porn magazine. And we put it in the porn stash. It just doubled the heat. I swear to God, I mean, that cover, I don't think it still goes on. I mean, the cover 20 years later, 25 years later, 
when that bulge has already been to Brown University, graduated, and I don't know what she's doing these days, but I mean, it is a long time ago. But everybody since, I mean, stars who are pregnant since all want to do their Demi Moore shot. Uh, again, what we're looking at is the cover of the August 1991. Vanity Fair is now $2.50. We're seeing the inflation, by the way, take up, take up over the years of Demi Moore, very pregnant, in the nude. You, you can't even think of Vanity Fair without thinking of that cover. And you can't even think of Demi Moore without thinking of that cover. That shot, that image has been imitated by countless celebrities, but also countless real people, real women who've wanted to have that image of themselves pregnant to keep for all time, for their own purposes even. It was so controversial at the time, and now... It's like the standard shot that everyone does, right? right? We went and spoke to Annie Leibovitz about shooting Demi and shooting this cover. We shot the interview in her office, and we have to light her. She's the best at lighting. There's a lot, of, pre the there's a lot of pressure when you're <laughs> photographing angles. the most famous photographer in modern, in modern pop culture history. Yeah. Then she sits down, and she starts tweaking the light on her desk. If you don't mind, do you want that off? You want that off? Um, if you need it, you can leave it on. If you don't, Start go here. <laughs> She's like, is it okay if I turn this light here? We're like, of course. You know Whatever better you than want. us. <laughs> it's, it's a simpler story to me about Demi Moore and how it came about than, than like as if there was ever a really a plan or an idea for it. So when we were doing this cover uh, of Demi Moore, it, it was pretty classic situation where it was being suggested because she was so pregnant that, you know, I, I come in tight and just photograph her, her head uh, for the cover. And, you know, as usual, the idea was to avoid the idea that she was pregnant. And so I did all of that. And then we were at the end of the sitting and I said, you know, listen, let's do some nudes for you. So you have photographs of the baby, you know, you know, for the future. And we started to take pictures and I just, I wondered <laughs> if this could be a cover. And then Tina said, well, I think I, I can't do this unless the me really agrees. And uh, she called, um, I think she called her or I called Demi, I can't quite remember. And Demi said she was fine with it, but it was something we had to sort of sort out afterwards. I mean, I think we, we were all just running by the seat of our pants there and just thinking it was provocative. The importance of it, you know, <laughs> came afterwards. We, we didn't really know, you know, how important it was till we did it. Vanity Fair at this point, I mean, it's, it's, it's as good as Tina Brown is going to make it because now she has been tasked or has the opportunity to help turn around or move in the right direction another one of these iconic publishing properties that Condé Nast owns, and that is the magazine known as The New Yorker. Yeah, so she becomes the editor of The New Yorker. Just the By the way, two very different types or feels of magazines, Absolutely. right? I mean, Vanity Fair versus The New Yorker, a little bit more on the conservative kind of straight-laced side of things. Right, and New Yorker fans were not happy about the woman who put naked Demi Moore on the cover of Vanity Fair was now taking over their beloved magazine. So we were really lucky, and we got to talk to David Remnick, who's the current editor of The New Yorker, but was working with Tina back then, and he talked about that challenge that she had. I mean, she really created the modern Vanity Fair. She gave it its, its bones, what it could be. She came to The New Yorker at a point where, in, in certain ways, The New Yorker was more admired than read, and that's a very dangerous thing. And I think she came in and woke it up. She broke 
a lot of China along the way. She offended this interest or that one, or this writer got offended, or that editor got offended, or, or, or distressed in some way. But I think there's no question, there's no question that when she came along in the early 90s to The New Yorker, she woke it up. This is, this is now twice with two very well-known properties. We've seen it happen in the United States. We're talking about the revamping and relaunching and, and re resurrection, the renaissance of Vanity Fair. She kind of takes that, does her thing with it, moves on to another establishment magazine in The New Yorker and does that within the span of around, what, six years, right? And right. then hands that off to Remnick. Right. And then now she's moving on to something completely different after that. Well, she had some ideas of what she thought um, magazines should become and how they can spread their wings. And so after six years at The New Yorker, I think she, as she tells it, she would have preferred to do this at The New Yorker. She didn't have that opportunity, but um, a very infamous um, person in the entertainment world actually gave her the opportunity to do that. So she is now getting into business with, let's Harvey just say, Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Yes, folks, that Harvey Weinstein. Well, at the end of nearly seven years, I was very passionate about expanding the New Yorker's radius. I wanted to make the New Yorker into a book company, literary festival, TV, radio show, and so I didn't want to do it. So at that point, Harvey Weinstein of Miramax Films just came to me and said, I love what you're doing. You should have a magazine that's also movies, books, TV. It was everything I had wanted to do. And he said, you know, you can be, instead of being an employee, you can be a partner, you can be an entrepreneur. At that time, Harvey Weinstein was producing Shakespeare in Love, The English Patient, My Left Foot. I mean, all of these wonderful films, every film that I loved was Harvey Weinstein's. But of course, as soon as I went to work for him, I discovered that he was really a charlatan. It was horrible to discover that after having left a wonderful job in a wonderful company to realize that I had been, frankly, snookered by uh, someone as disreputable as Harvey. And I just had to live with it. He'd never sexually harassed me, but I got every other kinds of belligerence and profanity. And, you know, he was a nightmare to work for. And Talk Magazine is folding two years after its much-hyped debut. You know, it was a very sad thing for me when Talk folded and having to kind of live with the idea it was, quote, a failure, but actually I always thought it was a creative success. So so Tina had left this great company that she loved, Condé Nast. She had a great job. She had what is arguably the best job in magazines, which was editing The New Yorker. She left that to do this talk magazine. So now she's kind of left with, you know, she what, doesn't what, have a magazine what, what anymore. Yeah. yeah, she doesn't have a magazine anymore. So she does a couple things. She writes a book about Princess Diana, which we mentioned earlier. Huge seller. Huge seller. She hosts a show here at CNBC. Yes. <laughs> called Topic A. And then at some point she connects with Barry Diller and they launch the Daily Beast news site. This is also the point, though, when Tina Brown is looking to kind of take that kind of new consumption paradigm in media and expand it. And one of the things that she started to see early on was this idea that there was a, a renewed interest in female-centric issues and concerns. And that led her to, to kind of create or craft this new property under this whole Daily Beast you know, regime called Women in the World. And it, it was a series of summits that were meant to kind of tackle some of these issues. And, and one of the launchers of this particular platform, one of the media personalities that was brought in to help christen this whole process was somebody that we all know very well. That first event was in a small theater, but it did attract some big time names. Like Hillary Clinton was there and 
participating on stage was the greatest actress in the world, Meryl Streep. I was trying to, on the way over here, I was trying to remember where I first met Tina, so I might get it wrong. But uh, the time when I, I really first encountered her particular insane amount of um, zeal and uh, appetite was when we, she arranged something called a play to be done called Seven. It was just the launch of Women in the World, which is this um, a platform for women to come together and uh, activists and uh, just women leaders to come together and, and talk about and bitch about everything. <laughs> talk about what's, what's wrong, what's right, and what's, what we need to do going forward. This was a play called Seven, and it was taken from the transcripts of seven different activists around the world, real, real life women. Tina had arranged this whole thing, and she was a whirlwind. I'd never met anybody like her. She was sort of a, an enfant terrible when she arrived from England to take over as a child. Vanity Fair and then The New Yorker, and she was always sort of a scary figure um, at a distance. But up, up close, up personal, she was, uh, I mean, I was completely sucked into her energy field and uh, fell in love with her. I thought she was amazing. We've done so many amazing interviews on the show. Meeting and interviewing Meryl Streep was incredible. I mean, it was just a highlight. It what was, was it like? The process of booking her was so uh, it simple. Was simple. We offered her anything that she could have possibly wanted to do this interview. Car, hair, makeup, uh, food, whatever. You know, we would have brought in anything. She's like, I'll just be there. So we're waiting at the elevator. She comes out and... The moment she steps out, you feel instantly comfortable around her and you forget that she is the most famous actress in the world and you're just thinking, this is a really nice person named Meryl Streep. We walked over to the interview site. I think we walked by a mirror and she sort of put her head down and fluffed up her hair and then sat down and started talking to Kevin. It was incredible. Yeah, there's always an awkward moment when you sit down and you say, we're just about to go and the crew needs another minute or two to, to actually start rolling and to say go. And it's always awkward because you don't want to ask one of your questions. You don't want to like kind of, you know, use that energy. So they're just kind of like chatting. And she was so easy and nice to talk to. And it was just so natural. I mean, just really down to earth person. I mean, you have to realize when, when I was growing up, the expectation for a girl was you went to college to get your MRS. You know, not your MS. <laughs> there weren't, there were a few women doctors, but very few. There were a few women lawyers, but very few. The world was a different place. And within 10 years, it all just sort of exploded in the 70s. But then it, it stopped. Part of that was the isolation of being the only woman in the room, or one of two. And you were always in competition because you knew that there were only two spots. One woman, and there was the, your competition. And so women were isolated from each other. Tina understood that the way to break this open was to make women have the networks that, that men so easily had at the golf club, at the athletic club, at the wherever it is they, you know, do the deals. That sort of hive mentality of everybody sort of buzzing with each other, that sort of fed into fed into this moment we're living through now. And uh, it's productive, I think. 
even though it's a little threatening, and it shouldn't be to men. Women in the World is now like a major event. They hold events throughout the world. Uh, the, the annual summit, they hold at Lincoln Center now. That's how big it's grown. She foresaw the second wave of feminism. She foretold what was going to be going on in, in the world today and uh, exemplified it with Women in the World. That women's movement that excited me that was taking place in Africa, India, and the Middle East has somehow kind of come around backwards, as it were, back to the United States. And it's an amazing thing to see how all of that energy has kind of caught fire. And we were at the beginning of it in 2009. So that is just a small sample of the career that is Tina Brown. Uh, I just want to thank, first of all, Kevin Kane for, for the storytelling that you've done here and, and telling the story of Tina Brown, producing and reporting this whole thing out. And of course, to Betsy Alexander for overseeing this whole production as the executive producer of The Brave Ones. You can find full TV episodes of The Brave Ones featuring highly successful risk takers and entrepreneurs from around the globe. And we can find them on CNBC International's YouTube channel. I'll be back soon with another edition of The Brave Ones podcast. 